turn to Acts chapter 6. I will be reading the first six verses, seven verses, Acts 6. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And when they said, and what they had said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procarius, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Here ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray, and we're going to look at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your blessed church and our king, the head of the church, your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we sit here this morning as recipients of grace, um, we are helpless in and of ourselves to rightly hear the word proclaimed. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you'll enable us to listen, to hear, to receive, to be servants who give as you, Father, gave your Son who came not to be served but to serve, to lay down his life as a ransom for many. We've been ransomed Help us to not take it for granted. Increase within us, Lord, a love for your word, a desire to serve one another. For the glory of your son's name we pray. Amen. The priorities of the church. We should say the priorities of Christ for his church, is what we will look at this morning. Now, um, in our study of Acts thus far, um, we've seen one central, non-negotiable, essential priority for the church in the first century, and that is the preaching of the Word of God. Preaching that framed not only their understanding of worship, but also their understanding of the church. We've heard a number of exegetical, Christ-centered sermons from the Apostle Peter. Okay, remember, from out of the Old Testament. He preached Christ from the Old Testament. We'll hear another sermon from Stephen next Lord's Day. And eventually, the Apostle Paul will declare in Colossians chapter 1, verse 25, of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Now, contrast that, that absolute priority of preaching in the early church, with the frequent confusion in today's congregation. I should say congregations. Congregation as a whole worldwide, especially in America, where we see the marginalization of the pulpit. 
American evangelicals are often quoted as saying something to the effect that, you know, preaching has its place, but let's not let preaching get in the way of music, you know, which is, after all, uh, what draws people in what establishes fellowship, they say. Have you ever heard that or things like that? You know, the sad result of such misplaced priorities is an epidemic of biblical illiteracy. Rising at an alarming rate among those who confess to be Christian, if they're Christian at all. We live in a time in America, beloved, where there is a famine of the word of God in the land. There's a famine in the land. Ministry leaders have relegated the pulpit ministry to second-class status. The highlight of worship service in many evangelical churches is the music. It's multimedia. It's skits or celebrity testimonies. And if there's preaching, it is rarely biblical preaching. The typical preacher today aspires to be more of a motivational speaker as though, you know, he's captain of the love boat rather than a biblical exegete. And as Stephen J. Lawson says, exposition is being replaced with entertainment, doctrine with drama, theology with theatrics, and preaching with performances, end of quote. Many professing Christians today take the word of God for granted. They rarely read it, let alone study it. They don't take advantage of Bible studies or small groups. Their church attendance is is sporadic at best until crisis arises. They lose their job or some dramatic event takes place in their lives, and they show up at church, and they ask you to pray for them, and most certainly we do, we will, and when things settle down, they're gone again. You know, during times of prosperity in the Old Testament, Israel had no appetite for God's word when the prophets spoke. And look at what God did. Amos chapter 8, verse 11. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and from north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Because of their apathy, God said he would take away even the opportunity to hear his word. Consequently, during times of Israel's captivity, no word from the Lord could be found. That's frightening. You know, John Calvin famously comments on Amos 8, and he said this, and I quote, When we abuse God's bounty, our ingratitude deserves this recompense. End quote. God forbid, beloved, God forbid that pastors of all people neglect to preach the word of God. The Bible. By the way, when you slam this Bible on the... This thing weighs like eight pounds. (laughs) Friends, here in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, we are reminded that that, that is the preaching of the word, is the mandate... For the preacher, regardless of the kind of opposition that will arise, and opposition will arise. Thus far, the devil 
having failed to overcome the church by outside persecution, persecution of the Sanhedrin, and inside corruption of Ananias and Sapphira, who he knocked dead, Satan now tries his hand at distraction within the church to preoccupy the apostles with social administration. Important? Yeah. Primary? No. This was an attempt to get the apostles to neglect their God-given responsibility to study, preach, and pray. Right here. Friends, we must not miss the satanic strategy here to divide and conquer. His strategy to divide and conquer, which ultimately is an attempt to silence the word of God. Whatever it takes to silence God's word. And here, it's through the avenue of grumbling and complaining within the church. You know, Acts 6, Acts chapter 6 is the grand opening of the complaint department in the early church, and that department has never closed since. Amen? Notice first, verse 1, there's a disagreement, there's a division within. Verse 1, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose. Notice, we read the church was growing. What do we say? Amen. Followed by a complaint. The regrettable gagusmas. That's the word. It means a grumbling murmur. (laughs) A grumbling murmur. And I praise God that you're all not like that, by the way. Now, more people means more temptations for grumbling. More people, more problems. I love the way one commentator defines this situation in Acts 6. Listen carefully. He defines it as follows, and I quote, Impediments to growth caused by growth can become occasions for growth when priorities are protected and ministry is shared, end of quote. That's what we're after this morning. Let me say it again. Impediments to growth caused by growth can become occasions for growth when priorities are protected, preaching, and ministry is shared, end of quote. Is that great? I wish I'd come up with stuff like that. (laughs) Sorry. Notice, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Okay, Hellenistic Jews simply means Greek-speaking Jews who had dispersed throughout time, throughout the Roman Empire, and as was often the case, when the men died, the widows would return to their homeland. Remember the story of uh, Naomi and Ruth? And Naomi returned from Moab when her husband died. She returned to Bethlehem near Jerusalem because she knew that there would be enough sufficient to live on. The Mosaic law required the people of God to care for their widows. They were in a difficult position. It was, likely, it was unlikely, rather, that they would remarry. There was no governmental aid. There was no welfare system like we have in our day. So income was minimal. So here we have a problem. Now, this, this serving of daily food and this group being overlooked was, was most likely um, unintentional. I think it was unintentional oversight. But make no mistake, beloved. Make no mistake, Satan works to diligently try to divide God's people. Now, behind the trigger of complaint here is something deeper, and that is the issue of trust and favoritism. 
This is a clever strategy of Satan against leadership in the early church. The leadership here was thought to be seen as neglecting a sect of widows, okay, and you add to that um, linguistic challenges and cultural issues of the day, and early on within the church, you have an us and them dispute. So this is a sensitive issue. This would most certainly um, raise um, emotional concern within the church of Jesus Christ, and, and grumbling ensues. You know, unfortunately, grumbling is nothing new for the people of God, is it? Is it? No. You remember our study in Exodus? How long did we spend, what, two years in Exodus? The same word for complaining is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the people's grumbling against Moses in the wilderness. Just uh, look at, think about this. Just like Israel, we are a people of great deliverance. Amen? We're a people of great deliverance, delivered by God, and initially we're very joyful because we've been delivered by God. What an experience, regeneration, new life only to become disappointed along the way to the promised land, i.e. heaven. We become disappointed because things aren't the way we conceive them to be. It's true for you. It's true for me. Same story, same result. That is the propensity to complain. You know, for some within the church, it's the rolling of the eyes. There are those who are the gossipers. There are those who are always nagging. There are those who harbor bitterness. They're just angry. Some in the church are subtle and they're complaining. They complain silently, waiting for someone to ask, What's wrong, sister? What's wrong, brother? They have a furrowed brow, perhaps a perplexed look. They walk around with this grimaced look upon their face, waiting for someone to say, what's wrong? And then they unload. Others are not so subtle. They say exactly what's on their mind. Their mouths don't stop. But a complaining and grumbling spirit is no small sin, beloved. It's often overlooked because it's so common. So, whatever it is, we, all of us, must identify it and by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, put it to death and stop justifying ourselves with regard to complaining in and against the church. Our little local assembly, amen? Notice in response, the apostles were very wise in addressing the issue, verse 2. So, the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples. So here they wisely call for a meeting. Now, is it possible to please everyone? No. It is impossible to please everyone within the church, and that's a great comfort for pastors. Because we'll say, neither did Moses, or Paul, or the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not possible. Now, we don't take that as a license, but we do take it as reality. Some complaints are just complaints. Whiners whine. So, a little bit of practical application before we move on. Before you, before you complain about the church, your attitude needs to be checked, tone needs to be checked, your timing needs to be checked, and your willingness to be part of the solution needs to be checked. Witness on the left, witness on the right. And most of all, your thankfulness needs to be checked. If your thankfulness does not exceed your complaining, don't complain. Something's wrong. Something needs to be repented of. 
And it's interesting that those who have a tendency to to complain the most in the church serve the least. It's kind of like those who dislike hearing about giving typically give the least. And as Vody Balkum says, if you can't say amen, say ouch. <laughs> amen? Ouch. <laughs> okay, so here then, I'm under this complaint, there is a legitimate concern. And notice, wisdom is sought for a solution. I love this. Notice the proposal now. There's the problem. Here's the proposal, verse 2. They said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. So uh, the apostles, they do not ignore the problem. They do not attack their critics, but they appoint men to the task. Notice also what they do not do. They do not say, hmm, okay, we have a problem in the church. Um, There must be a professional organization out there in the world somewhere that we can hire to come in and solve the problems, to give us some corporate advice on how to run the show, you know, some team building techniques. (laughs) You know, we'll pay them $20,000 to take us out to an obstacle course blindfold us so we'll stand 10 feet up on a tree branch somewhere and fall backwards into the arms of our trusting comrades. They'll show us how to do things because we're biblically illiterate, derelict, and lazy. Does that sound silly? That is silly, but let me tell you this. Just throw money at it. And I'll tell you this. A good majority of churches in American evangelicalism do just that. Most specifically, the larger ones who can afford that. Not here. Notice, here they make use of the gifts within the church. It's beautiful. God's people do God's work. Amen. Verse 5. Notice, everyone was pleased. Why? Because they make use of the gifts that are already there. You don't have to hire the world to come in and show us how to run the show. See, the answer to the problem was not that the apostles just need to work harder. You know, get up an hour earlier. Apply more energy and time in order to resolve the problem. No. This is a very practical response. We will, f- we will find qualified hands to help. I don't have this on the screen, but, but listen to this. Romans uh, 12, verse 4. For just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We'll be reminded of that when we come to the Lord's table this morning. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, in service, in his serving, Or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. That's a picture of Pacific Hope. Church. Word. Word. Beautiful. Now, this decision, beloved, is not presented solely on the basis of pragmatism, that this is a practical response. This suggestion is based most importantly on the priorities of ministry. This is very important. As important as food is for life, the word and worship of God's people, the word of God being proclaimed and the worship of God's people are more important. So here they say, in essence, look, if we spend all day waiting on tables 
and, and serving the needs of the body, as important as those matters are, no doubt, we will neglect the primary calling that God has laid upon us, and that is preaching and teaching the scripture along with leading in corporate worship. Two, undisputable priorities of the apostles. Two, undisputable priorities of preachers in churches today. Amen? You know, we live in a day and age where people want to shorten the sermon and they want to shorten prayer. You know, sometimes I pray for seven, eight minutes. Someone may come and visit and go, man, what's up with the long prayer? That's part of service. That's part of worship. That wasn't the case with the early church. They were adamant that the ministry of the word of God came before mercy ministries, as important as mercy ministries are. And this decision was met with the approval of the people, and it renewed harmony within. you got to love it. By keeping the main thing, the main thing, teaching and preaching the word of God, harmony within the body was restored. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Listen to what the late, great R.C. Sproul says in his commentary on Acts. Quote, every year 17,000 ministers in America leave the ministry. Did you know that? <sighs> 17,000. A primary reason is that ministers in the modern church are not encouraged, equipped, enabled, or allowed to devote themselves to the preaching and teaching of the word of God. They are expected to do the administration, the development work, to be an expert in counseling and pastoral care. As a result, we have raised up a generation of pastors who are a jack of all trades and masters of none, and none of the reasons why they do, and one of the reasons, rather, they do not open up the word of God for the congregation on Sunday mornings is that they do not know how. They have spent all their time learning everything else but the texts of Scripture, end of quote. Notice the priority, verse 5. But we, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, this great task, beloved, okay, having learned from Jesus, the apostles, that is, having learned from Jesus that they have to read the Bible in an entirely new way. Illumination of the Spirit granted to them. They have the Spirit within them, and it's going to take study that they understand the Bible the correct way, and that is that he, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the key hermeneutic for understanding the Old Testament. When we read these sermons, it all comes from the Old Testament. The, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. Our day is no different. The preacher's job is not to come up with his own ideas week in and week out. It is this. We will give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. Prayer. Why prayer? Very simply, beloved, because apart from the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, you will never come to understand and or appreciate the meaning of the word. That's why we pray for the Holy Spirit to fall in a way that opens our eyes and renews our hearts because we can become callous. And without the power of the Holy Spirit, all preaching, regardless of effort and exegetical accuracy, will never change a single soul. That's why they studied and that's why they prayed. That's why we study, that's why we pray gather with the elders and we pray on behalf of you. We prayed this morning before service. Corporate worship or corporate prayer, the first Wednesday of every month we gather that the Holy Spirit will do this great and grand work by way of his word proclaimed to save souls and sanctify the saints. Prayer. So when a pastor comes along 
who, to the detriment of prayer and preaching, says, I'm going, to, I'm going to show just how humble and relatable I am by waiting on tables, by creating ministries for everyone. I'm going to make myself available for counseling 24-7. That's not humility, that's arrogance. Assuming he's wiser than the Lord of the church... He now has a misdirected ministry. I've seen guys in the past, pastors, everywhere you go, there they are. They're like super pastor. They're hanging out with people. They're chest bumping people. They're at every fellowship event, every picnic, every gathering, every bonfire. They make visits to home Bible studies. That all sounds good, but you know where it shows up? To be a mistake is preaching. He doesn't preach. He doesn't spend time studying because he's doing everything else. It's a mistake. That is why verse 2, notice, it would not be right for us. It would not be right for us in the eyes of God to give up preaching the word. So they say no to what is good in order to say yes to what is best. Something that is good indeed, caring for widows, must not get in the way of what is best. For these apostles to, to sit and study and to bring the word, to proclaim the word, to preach the word. Something good, fellowshipping all week with, with, with the congregation, being everybody's buddy. That's a good thing, but it takes away from what is best. If a pastor places a priority on counseling, like six or seven people all week, that's at least seven hours. At least. There should be other people in the congregation who are competent to counsel. Amen? And by the way, you all do that. I, I hardly counsel anyone. It's fantastic. But I am willing, always, and available. But most times, you know what we'll say? Let's say a couple comes in. They're having a dispute. And they're Christians. Or they have a concern. Usually, my first question is this. How long have you been a Christian? Five, seven, eight, ten, twenty years. Oh, 15, 20 years. So let me ask you, Christian, what do you suppose the Lord has to say to you about this situation? Nine times out of 10, they know the answer. Right? Apply it. What am I, what do I have to do now? Say apply it? <laughs> now just go home and apply it. Wives, love your husband. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, serve your husbands. Listen to your husband. Love one another. Serve one another. Submit to one another. Is that hard? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just ask my wife. But by the grace of God, amen? The grace of God. His word, a gift to us, his people. We have the spirit of God. Notice, however, the 12 do not abdicate their responsibility. Instead, they delegate. They delegate. Love that word, delegate. So notice, this is a group, who, a group of men who are not only capable, but they're spiritually mature as well. In other words, there are other people, other men who can do this work just as well, if not better. There's people in this church who can counsel a lot better than I can. Probably because they just, they're more tender and they talk like this. They can say the same thing. I mean, you know, they speak the same truth, but they have a tender voice and a gentle countenance. It's refreshing. Versus, what does the word say? <laughs> okay, go apply it, brother. What's the problem? <laughs> We all have our gifts. <laughs> Notice verse 5. Oh, the statement found approval. 
with the whole congregation, and they, still, they, they, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip. We'll hear more about those two in coming weeks. Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Notice all seven names are Greek names. There is no scrambling attempt here for the church to be politically correct. Um, let's go find three Hellenistic um, Jews and in, in, in three Aramaic-speaking Israelites to do this, to please everyone, balance everything off, make everybody happy. None of that. Christ's church in the New Testament has never selected servants and leaders in order to be politically correct. Church has never been interested in equal representation as, for instance, our culture dictates. Notice, these are seven men sealed by the presence of the Holy Spirit, and they have godly wisdom. And these candidates here, these candidates are presented by way of character. Spirit-filled, spirit-minded men. Not the language that they speak, not where they come from, not the color of their skin. Their character, godly character. And that is they have a mentality like their master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? They laid their hands on them. In other words, they're set apart for this very specific ministry. This is a very traditional way uh, to visibly affirm unity, solidarity, saying, in effect, we stand with these men. And this, no doubt, serves as a model that would later serve as an, an example of the, of the office of deacon. People may disagree that, well, if you're looking for deacon in the Bible, it doesn't, you know, you're looking at the wrong text. Eh, maybe, maybe not. I think this serves as an example of, of what the deaconate would be, uh, or the uh, diaconate, the uh, office. So here, being full of the Spirit, that's a metaphor, by the way. It's not that you're filled up as though you're filled with fluid, and there are certain levels. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is not an it, not a thing. He's the third person of the Godhead, head, and being filled with the Holy Spirit is to be altogether controlled by the Holy Spirit. Or to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And it's evidenced here in powers of wisdom. You know, being filled with wisdom is, is much more than having a head full of knowledge. I've met some people with a head full of knowledge that are, they're spiritually not the sharpest tool in the shed. Here, these men are of good reputation, full of the spirit, um, the result of which will be obedience to God, possessing in turn wisdom. Wisdom. Here's truth, here's how we apply it. Here's truth, here's a situation, um, here's discernment granted to us by the Holy Spirit because we're filled with the Spirit. We test all things in light of the Word. Now, Paul, of course, will go into much more detail in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus that would come many years later, um, establishing the order in qualifications for the office of deacon, um, which deacon simply means what? Servant. Servant. You know, every believer is a servant. We're all recipients of grace. Look at Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, 
so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven, of those who are in heaven, those who are under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So then, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, put, um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without, without grumbling or disputing. All Christians serve, amen? See, the question is how? How do we serve? Are you a Christian? Do you serve? See, serving is what distinguishes an attender from a member. I congregate, I fellowship, I worship, I serve at a local congregation, Pacific Hope Church, San Diego, California. I'm a member there of the body of Christ. That's where I serve. That's where I use my gifts. So, that being said, um, our responsibility as members isn't to simply sit back and point out certain needs. Hey, there's a problem over there. There's a gap over there. No, we, we, we want to see, okay, what is the cause of the need? And then there's a willingness to, to stand and serve and, pro, and to provide the need, amen? It's very simple. You know, the work of deacon is indispensable. There's no glamour. There's no glitz. There's only service. When I get here every Sunday morning, Church has already opened up. Some deacons are already here. They're already serving. They've opened the building. They've worked to prepare the communion table, as someone did this morning. And when I leave, some are here to shut down. They serve. I thank God for the deacons of our church. Thank you, deacons. You serve faithfully. And not only, friends, the office of deacon, but the many servant-minded, deacon-minded people that make up this wonderful body. Servant-minded men, women, and children. You all are amazing. I came to this text and said, how am I going to preach this? Words priority, and I understand there's an importance here of service, but man, you guys do it well. So that God's word can be studied and declared. Okay, notice, all that being said, notice the postscript, verse 7. And, and the word, <laughs> the word of God kept on spreading. What Luke means by the word of God here is Christocentric teaching. Christocentric preaching, teaching. The gospel of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, the, the condescending grace of God by way of the sending of the Holy Spirit, the gift of eternal life, all built upon the Old Testament scriptures. That's what we've been seeing thus far, without which, without which you do not have the word of God. Do we hear that? If it's not Christocentric, you don't have the word of God. So whatever is going on, in Jewish synagogues, not this morning, but yesterday, is not the word of God. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Muslims, every Jewish synagogue, and every other religion in this world, they are all spouting heresy. Did you hear? Heresy. You denied the deity of Jesus Christ... You deny the person and work of Jesus Christ, that he alone atones for the sins of fallen sinners, that he is the only way, that he is truth and he is life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. You got another gospel. Where you do not have a proper Christology, you do not have the word of God. 
And here, the word of God spread. They're preaching Christ from the Old Testament. From the Old Testament. How did it spread? First, because the apostles were alleviated the weight of having to serve tables. It's very simple. They were caught up with nothing but proclaiming, preaching, studying, and proclaiming the word of God. That is what must mark the church as its locus of focus, word of God. You know, it's easy for pastors to get distracted. Amen? And I think some, there are some who, who, who prefer being distracted with other things because the continuous ministry of the word of God is just constant preparation. It's just hard work. It's just work. So it's easy to be distracted. Perhaps easy to want to be distracted. Thank you that we don't have to be distracted. Notice. And, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. You see the result here? Gospel obedience. That's what obedience to the faith is. It's gospel obedience. Believing Jesus Christ, beloved, is a command. It's a command. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that comes by way of the primary means of God's grace, preaching. They heard it, and they obeyed it. It must be proclaimed. Why must the word be proclaimed? Well, beloved, because there's only two ways of dying. There's two ways of dying. We can die in faith, or we can die in our sins. You die in faith, you go to heaven. You die in your sins, you go to hell. That's eternity for eternity. If I want the words of eternal life, there's only one place I can go to get them, and it's the one who gave his life that we might have life, Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and raised again. And what did he provide for us? Substitutionary atonement. Providing the propitiation, that is the satisfaction of holy God's wrath against sin and sinners. The gospel, that's what they're preaching. That's what they're studying. Obedience to the gospel, that means, friends, that you trust not in yourself, but in God who provides a righteousness that is foreign to you. It comes from outside of us. You're not going to find it within. It's a gift. Christ Jesus. Are you obedient to the faith? In other words, do you believe? Have you repented of your self-righteousness? Have you repented of false belief? Have you repented of that sin and come to Christ in humble, reverent fear? Repent and believe and you will be saved. Perhaps you're one, you're here and you think, man, I'm beyond God's forgiveness. Really? Beyond God's forgiveness? Did you notice this text? Some of Christ's most bigoted arch enemies, notice, a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith, meaning they possessed saving faith. You know, you can, you, you can profess faith without possessing faith. It's possible. You could grow up in church and profess Jesus and not possess faith. Nobody was ever saved by a mere profession of faith. You must possess saving faith in God's only Son, Jesus Christ. Faith and trust in Christ alone. Repent and believe, and you too shall be saved. Amen? So here then to close, application for Pacific Hope Church. Notice we see the fruit of leadership in preaching. 
We see problem resolution. We see delegation. We see servant-mindedness within, resulting in true ministry through and through. This is ministry. This is ministerial life right here. You're all in full-time ministry if you're a Christian. We're all in it together. Full-time ministry. So here, uh, 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 potential problems are seen as possibilities for service, not reasons to complain or to divide. Bottom line, while a healthy congregation, a healthy congregation displays the gospel, as you all do, the preachers are able to proclaim the gospel, which we do. A people, all of whom serve. So, when notice, when priorities are protected and ministry is shared, quality growth is experienced. Amen? Quality growth. Sanctification of God's people. As far as the numerical growth goes, that's God's business too. So may we stick to the main thing. Amen? So we must, beloved, protect the priority of prayer and the ministry of the word by sharing ministry responsibility together. And may we never have to suffer. May we never have to suffer a self-inflicted famine on the land for hearing the words of the Lord. Amen? But instead, may we always be quick to relish the privilege of hearing and applying the word of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word once again. A wonderful, bountiful means of grace. And as we have heard the word this morning, we now move, Lord, to the word made visible, the gospel made visible uh, by way of the communion table. Another bountiful means of grace. Lord, help us um, to apply this truth to our own hearts, to be ever thankful for the word that you have condescended to gift us with and for the table in all that we share in its beauty, the broken body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us now as we partake, we ask for his sake. Amen.